Hey, George Cedarquist here, co-host of Opera Box Score. I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. As we get ready for season six of the OBS launching September 14, we're asking for a few bucks to help keep the show going. Your donations help us bring you the best interviews. Like Lydia Yankovskaya, Matthew Polanzani, uh, like Brenda Ray, like all of the amazing moms we had on the Mother's Day episode. And it helps us bring hot takes from all over opera land. Since there's so much live performance going on right now. We're bustling. <laughs> We're busy. Hey, look, five bucks buys an ad on Facebook, 10 bucks pays for a month on SoundCloud or Squarespace, where you can see and... my dreadful web design skills. And look, 20 bucks could get... Oliver, what? Uh, a friend. <laughs> Go to operaboxscore.com slash donate to help season six be the hottest, funniest, and bestest season yet. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about Opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by, well, everybody and nobody. It's our Labor Day best of show. Labor Day has come and gone, of course, here in the U.S., but we refuse to let summer finish and put away the white clothes. We got three great segments from the archives for you tonight. First up, our show from February 10th, 2020, when we remembered Mirella Freni. We played some favorite performances of the iconic Italian soprano who had died just before the show at the age of 84. Ashley Hardgrave leaving that segment. And then, and then it's a segment from January of this year. We went inside the huddle with last year's Grammy Award winner for Best Classical Vocal Solo Album, Lebanese-American tenor Kareem Suleiman. He told us his Cinderella story on that episode. And then wrapping up the show, Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings face off in a brutal TKO match featuring mad scenes. That TKO was moderated by... Conductor Anthony Bereze and even Weston Williams shows up. That was from our August 27th, 2019 three-hour season finale. Got a great best-of show for you tonight. First up, the NFL starts Thursday. Houston playing at Kansas City. Tobias Wright, very happy about that. Of course, my question is, how long is the NFL going to last? Two weeks, four weeks, one week? If... Major League Baseball is anything to go by. It's going to be a disaster. The NBA has figured it out. That was through a bubble campus. No such luck in the NFL. We're going to see what happens. Keeping our eye on the U.S. Open going down in Flushing Meadows as well. Quarterfinals currently. That will be all wrapped up by the next time we see you. All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. 
According to Italian newspapers, the beloved Italian soprano Morella Freni died at her home in Modena due to illness. Freni, one of the most dignified and elegant artists to grace the world's greatest stages, preserved her sumptuous tone quality through shrewd choice of repertoire, allowing her to enjoy a career that lasted a half century. She was the last in a line of Italian sopranos who prompted ovations with their entrances alone, a link to singers from the golden era and earlier, such as Renata Tebaldi, Licia Albanese, Magda Olivero, and Claudia Muzio. She was also indelibly linked to Luciano Pavarotti, the other singer who hailed from Modena, with whom she shared many an evening, offering her frozen little hand. Angelita Manina. So this one kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, we haven't really heard about Mila Lafreni, and apparently she has been sick. Uh, so this was a shock. And, you know, it came yesterday when every all the gays were concerned about Oscars. So it sort of <laughs> fell to this morning's news for everybody to realize that it happened. Um, there are many beautiful tributes that are already out there. New York Times, Opera Wire, all the places where you get your uh, opera news in print. Uh, you can read them. Uh, but since we are in audio format, let us pay our tribute by listening to some of her performances. I'd like to start with a recording of Mila Lafreni singing Tatiana's Letter, seen from Eugene Onegin, uh, from the gallery opening of the Zurich Opera House in 1984. This is when Freni was in her prime, when she was past singing the Inas and the Etas and singing the more full lyric repertoire. And man, the pitch is so good. The tone is so strong. The acting is all in her face and in her eyes. And she's just so classy. And uh, what a great performance. So this is uh, just the second half of Tatiana's letter scene. I also want to say that my first hearing of Mila Lafrenia, the first time I ever heard her sing, was back when I was a little teenage gay, watching <laughs> um, the operas broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera uh, on PBS. And there was a broadcast of The Marriage of Figaro, and I don't remember anybody else in the cast, but I do remember that Mila Lafrenia was the countess. And there was a little interview with her uh, between the acts, where the interviewer was, you know, commenting on how she graduated to the role of the countess. And I had no idea. I was like 16 years old or something like that. I had no idea what that even meant back the, when I was that young, what Fox were and what an aging voice might sound like. But now that I think about it, you know, a woman who spent 
so much of her life singing Susanna and Zelina and, you know, Adina and these, you know, light, lighter lyric roles to be able to come back to an opera and sing, you know, the big prima donna role. And I just remember being so moved and I didn't know anything about opera at that point. I just knew that there was something that was so dignified and classy about this woman and the way she communicated with stillness, just with the voice, just with posture, just with grace. Uh, I was blown away and I was a fan ever since. Anyway, I don't know where that the video of that uh, Contessa performance is. It's somewhere out there in the ether. It hasn't been redistributed on uh, by the Met, and I don't see it anywhere in the, on the YouTube's. But it's out there somewhere. If some of you or some of you knows where that is or has a VHS of it, please upload it so we can all enjoy it. Ashley, yeah, um, you know, you were talking about how you you had a very distinct memory of of things when you were you know sort of a baby teenage guy. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't really get deeply into Morella Franey until graduate school. Um, I had a professor who was really big on, you know, recordings of the greats. He was like, this is how you learn. This is how you learn from the generation before you because you're not always going to get to see things live, so you're going to do recordings. Um, and I had to do, of all things, a study on Maria Callas' roles done here in the city of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I had to do a deep dive on Elvira in Iportani. Mm. And uh, so I went to this professor and I said, well, who do you, you know, where should I start? Should I start with a callous recording? And he goes, actually, no. I want you to find Marilla Franey. Singing I have Elvira that recording. <laughs> in e oh, my goodness. It is. I, you know, I pulled a number of things, but, you know, I heard her Boheme live in 69 and I heard, you know, Aida, Don Carlo. And then finally I pulled out this Elvira recording. And what blew my mind about her was that there was such a clean, a cleanliness of the sound. I couldn't tell what she was doing with her with her head and her mechanism, and mm -hmm. I didn't know where that sound was coming out of, if it was coming out of the back of her head, the top of her head, the front of her face, no idea. But it was, it was unlike anything I had ever heard before. It was so pure and clear and distinct. So the recording that I wanted to share was something that was very moving to me also what helped me fall in love with the role of Elvira and this uh, this, this little guy Bellini um, was a, a recording of Quila Voce which is the first part of one of the famous arias for Elvira and Uporitani. This recording is from 1965 in the Roman Opera Theater Orchestra with Franco Ferraris conducting. <laughs> So one of the things that Mila Franey kind of embodies is the idea of the phrase, the love of the phrase, 
and um, the really difficult thing to parse, which is simplicity. And when I was first coming up as a young opera queen, um, I was always interested in the singers that were flashy and that, you know, did these really explicit technical feats. And I didn't really understand how simplicity is hard. But now that Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, a certain age and I teach singing and I still sing myself every now and then, and I want that communication, that just really clear communication that can only come from beautiful diction, uh, a focused tone quality that's in tune, and, um, yeah, very deliberate phrasing, and that's what Marilla Franey does. You know? Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost so easy that you forget how challenging that must be. I mean, mm. Again, if you're drawn to flashy singers, mm. which I know I was too, there's something about them that sort of telegraphs, hey, this is hard, and I'm I'm not that it's not that it sounds like it's challenging for them, mm-hmm. but because they're doing so many acrobatics, it's like they're subliminally telling you, hey, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. But when you have those people that are more r- relaxed and 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 organic when it comes to their phrasing, which, you know, a lot of Italian singers of this era were, but she's kind of the poster child for this, is that you don't understand the challenge until, like you said, you're a little bit further along in your study, your career, when you're teaching singers Mm -hmm. and you're trying to get them to not use flash and tricks to get through. It's like she's just organically singing the notes on the page in the right duration, but she's telling the story so clearly. Sing it legato, sing it in tune, and sing it beautifully. Mm -hmm. How hard is that to do? magical how hard that is yeah. and it was it was fascinating to watch uh, a diva such as her do it so well well one of the recordings or roles that she's going to be linked to forever is um, Mimi mm. there's that great recording uh, with Karian conducting and Pavarotti as uh, Rodolfo but here's a live recording that um, Matt would like us to play uh, this is from a broadcast from Rome from the IRA from, from RAI Uh, in Rome um, from 1969 with Thomas Shippers conducting. So there are plenty of other things that you just listen to. I've definitely listened to The Butterfly. Um, that She'd recorded it twice, actually, in her career, once with Karyan and once with Sinopoli, I think. Um, and uh, that's a role that she sings so gorgeously, but she says she would never sing it on stage because it's just too emotional for her. She could never get through it. Mm. But there's that movie of her singing, I think, Domingo is Pinkerton. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. Um, 
And then later in her career, you know, the Verdi roles like uh, Elisabetta and Don Carlo. Um, she did, I mean, she is known for actually really being protective of her voice and not singing things that are above her weight. But Carrion pushed her to try experiment with Aida when she was still a lyric soprano. And that's the Aida recording that has Agnes Balza as um, Amneris and Jose Carreras as Radames. And of those three, only Carreras really is a convincing uh, in a role that's heavier than what he should be singing. But there are some details that come out when lyric voices sing those Verdi roles that are super interesting. Uh, Aida sounds so much more youthful. And I have to say, Agnes Balsa is wicked as Amneris. It's one of my favorites, actually. Which, in a lot of ways, I mean, given the actual storytelling that needs to happen, it it is kind of nice, if not damaging, to hear younger voices. Um, She also sings a beautiful Susanna uh, with uh, Jesse Norman as the Contessa in the Colin Davis recording of Marriage of Figaro from probably the 60s or 70s. I forget when that was. And then later in the career, uh, the Adriana Lecouvreur is gorgeous. Uh, the Tosca is gorgeous. Uh, anything that requires just more volume and richness and those, you know, Verdi lines. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mila Franey is the person to go to. My friend Roberta, who was one of the co-hosts of Opera Now podcast, would have so much more to say. And I'm so sorry that she's not on this panel to uh, help us guide us through the discography, uh, the legacy that um, Mila Larfini left behind. But now you know. If it's, if it's the first time hearing this name, if you're one of those young upstarts that's just getting into opera, go check it out. There's a rabbit hole you can go down, uh, especially on YouTube, obviously, and Spotify. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. In January of this year, we went inside the huddle with last year's Grammy Award winner for Best Classical Vocal Solo Album, Lebanese-American tenor Kareem Suleiman. Kareem retold us his Cinderella story that was to the likes of Oliver Camacho and the rest of the team. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. On February 10th of 2019, our guest had the audacity to beat veteran baritone Randall Scarlatta, Nefranchi, Sabine Duvier, and Philippe Jarouski, and even friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, for the Grammy Award for Best Classical Vocal Solo Album. Now, look, we're always happy when an American beats anyone French, but (laughs) few could have predicted that the dark horse... Tenor Kareem Suleiman would come out on top. Well, not at least until we actually listened to Songs of Orpheus, Suleiman's exquisite collaboration with Apollo's Fire, the Cleveland-based period orchestra. The Chicago native is back at home preparing a program which focuses on one of the most intimate and sensual poems of the Song of Songs. Kareem, welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Kareem, I'm Hi. so glad you're on the show. I made this happen, and I'm I'm so excited that we got finally to get you on. You're a Chicago native. I am. And um, we generally don't like to talk too much about people's like biographies. They can usually find that information on your website, which is, I assume, KareemSuleiman.com. That's the one. Okay. 
But I do want to say really quickly, since we often talk about issues of uh, inclusion and social justice, that you sang with the Chicago Children's Choir. I sure did. I grew up in the Chicago Children's Choir. I and feel like it's where I got it's like Children's where Choir. I got my education more than going to school. <laughs> so Chicago notoriously is a pretty segregated city, and the fine arts uh, organizations, like the big ones. Uh, have taken a long time to start to think about these issues, but I feel like Chicago Children's Choir has always been thinking about this issue and that their model for really trying to reach every single neighborhood of the city and find the best and bring them to the, you know, to the forefront and give those kids an opportunity to sing literally all over the world is talking the talk and walking the walk. Absolutely. Can you say a little bit about your experience with Chicago Children's Choir before we move on to uh, yeah, I would love the to. adult I mean, version I, of Cream I love, talking, <laughs> I love talking about Chicago Children's Choir. Um, I mean, it. you know, when I was in it, I'm not going to say how long ago it was. <laughs> but, uh, your, your voice hadn't broken. <laughs> well, that is true. It actually didn't change until I was about 16, maybe almost 17. So, um but when I was in it, it was just local, localized to Hyde Park. Um, that's where all the kids from all the neighborhoods came to sing. And, um, and it's become such a huge, amazing thing. And it's always been this sort of champion for making kids come together and learning about the power of music and the power of what it means to sing together and how that, like, reaches into their real lives you know and occasionally and getting experience singing on lyric opera stage yeah, or with chicago symphony orchestra yeah, exactly. or some Amazing major exactly. venue like I, that my son is 10 years old i re and he sings i really want him to be in the choir my wife says it's way too much work like how often did you rehearse do you remember it was twice a week it was tuesdays after school and saturday mornings and i think the saturday rehearsals were i mean i'm sure it's different now like i said it was <clears throat> a while ago <laughs> and uh but uh, the Saturday rehearsals, I think, were a little bit longer than the Tuesday rehearsals. Mm. And uh, but and then, you know, when when there was like a special project, like, say, at Lyric or at Sh CSO, you know, you had some extra rehearsals. I mean, but that's life, right? That's, that's like the beauty <laughs> of it. That's why you do it. That's the glory. Of right. It. So, I mean, I, if your son wants to, I say. Were you ever one of the dry knobbin and magic flute? I wasn't, but I was handpicked by Sir George Schulte. Mm. That Ooh. will let you, <laughs> uh, that will give you like a sense of how long ago it was. <laughs> but I was handpicked by George Schulte <laughs> to sing the solo at the end of Damnation of Faust. Oh, nice. Um, oh. With Anne-Sophie Von Otter and oh. uh, José oh, Van Damme. And it was incredible. Wow. Yeah. Oh. So before we turn to the topic of Grammys, um, let's stay a little bit on social justice. A couple of years ago, uh, you produced this YouTube video, and I, who's singing on that? Is that you? That is me. As, are you like singing all four parts? Okay. Oh, wow. So, what is that song that you're singing? It's "In This Heart" by Sinead O'Connor. Oh my God, I love Sinead O'Connor. I had no yeah. idea it was her. Okay, so you're singing a song. Yes. Uh, all the parts, and all are you parts. accompanying yourself on like ukulele or no, something? No, no, no. It's actually it's just acapella. Voice. Okay. Acapella. Yeah. Yeah. And you are uh, standing in some park. What park is that? It's uh, at Central Park. It's across from Trump Tower. Okay. Oh. Um, and then you like have this beautiful poster, and you're blindfolded. Mm -hmm. And could you just tell us a little bit what's on that poster? Uh sure. It's uh, it's basically you know, it, what do you want me to actually say? What's literally on the poster? Well, you can summarize. I, it's an hour long it says, podcast. You know, so. Hey, my name is Kareem, and yeah. I'm an Arab, and uh, I, it, you know, we did. I did the the. 
I did this project in 2016 when yeah. the election happened. Yeah. And at that point, you know, the rhetoric was really bad, as it still remains to be bad, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it was my response to kind of like trying to talk to people who may have voted a certain way that I didn't agree with, but I felt like, th I think that part of what happened is that people stopped learning, people have stopped talking to each other properly. Mm -hmm. I think people yell mm -hmm. at each other, especially about politics, especially when they disagree. And when people are yelling, you tend to tune it out, right? Uh, so the experiment was just an attempt for me to try to bridge that gap I guess, and on the sign I say I'm an Arab American, and like a lot of people who, and I sort of list a bunch of, you know, minorities and marginalized people, marginalized yeah, right. people, women, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that feel scared as well. And it was an opportunity, as I was blindfolded, for people to approach me with my vulnerability and my defenses down, and to to talk to me and to, you know either comfort me or have a conversation with me where I couldn't see what they looked like, but they could see me. And that, and that was me offering um, an ear and a hand and a hug and all of those things to people. Well, I want so people to see this video. So how they'll, they'll go to the YouTube and they they'll search. They can go to YouTube or Vimeo and they can okay. just search my name, Kareem Suleiman, K-A-R-I-M-S-U-L-A-Y-M-A-N. Nice. Um, and I think it's probably the first thing that pops okay, up. Okay, good. It's well, we'll like link to it on our, on our website for sure. More than anything about We'll put a link to it on yeah. operaboxstory.com <laughs> as well. Kareem, I, I watched it before the show. It is some, like, the most moving three minutes <laughs> of video I have seen all year. Thank you. No, I, it's it's so ah, it's it's overwhelming. It's Thank really you. overwhelming to watch. My question for you is, uh, I'll, uh, you see some of the hesitation and and the tentativeness of mm -hmm. the people reading the signs. I don't think I'm spoiling anything here to say by the end of the video. You do <laughs> see people interacting with you. But did you have any very strong negative reactions to the sign, to the suggestion, to the experiment that you yes. were doing? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, you know, obviously the positive outweighs the negative in that. And, and um, the really what I took from the experience and what I learned from the experience is that there are more good people than bad people in this world. And not that I didn't know that, but it was good for me to go out and do that, I think, um, at that time. And I wanted, when, when my friend Meredith uh, filmed it and we, she sort of came up with the edit and we really did want to present the most positive parts of that and knowing that we, you know, she had, she stayed out with me. I think that day I was out for five hours. So she stayed out the whole time with me. And so she had footage of some of the good stuff, some of the bad stuff, you know, but we really did want to sort of tilt it in the, in the positive direction because that was really the point of it was to kind of bring, um, if I felt if anybody, when I was doing it just as, as a live performance piece and not the video i felt like if anybody could take something away that day and and think about the sign and think about the interaction then that was good and then with the video 
I felt if it could be used as a teaching moment for anybody uh, on either side of a political aisle or for anybody who looks at somebody like me and thinks that I deserve to be strip searched at an airport or that looks at a woman and uh, feels negatively towards her or you know any of those things that they think about it and that they change how they think and how they approach it. I want to like pivot from the idea of vulnerability to your recording, which won the Grammy, Songs of Orpheus. Um, I would just love to know like your coming up with the program. Uh, I mean, the idea of thematic music around Orpheus is not entirely original. It's not the first time we've heard this, but definitely this, not. This, <laughs> yeah, but this this particular recording seems to have this really beautiful flow where you want to like listen to it from the beginning all the way to the end. There's something like metaphysically beautiful about the overall recording, and there are some real great moments where the band uh, Apollo's Fire. Uh, it's like raucous and it feels like joyful and fun and you just feel like it's, you know, like it's a big party. But then there are these moments that are completely exposed. Uh, in particular, um, this beautiful Sigismonda d'India, I guess it's a madrigal, I'm not sure what how you categorize it. Um, uh, yeah, Piagono al Pian Germio, you can listen to it on the recording. And I think we're also going to hear another one, which is by Caccini, called Dolcissimo Sospiro. I think we'll hear that at the break. Uh, these are almost acapella pieces. I mean, there's obviously continual playing, but it's just very, very sparse. And that type of singing, it really feels like you are singing directly to whoever's listening and it almost feels like you should be wearing earphones because you're speaking directly to the listener and it's a little bit uh you know nervy and like <laughs> it's i mean i remember when i heard this recording for the first time i immediately uh messaged you it's like, it's like oh my god i can't believe that you did this you thank know? you yes i remember that you messaged me <laughs> yeah. it's very sweet um yeah, it was, you know, I was getting to a point in my life, not, I wouldn't say my career, but in my life, I mean my career, yes, which is part of it, but that I wanted to put out something that felt like mine and that felt like I was expressing myself sort of uh, without anybody telling me what to do, right? And uh, so I came up with this program because it's music that I love and uh I think that the Orpheus story is the reason why we sing and the reason that music is so powerful to people. And, um, and so I, I told the story in two parts and then in the third part of the, there, the CD is in album. You don't say CD yeah. anymore. <laughs> the album is in, uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> The, the album, track is, yes. <laughs> uh, it's in three parts, and uh, the first two parts is a direct retelling of the story uh, using composers that were inspired by the story, and then the third part is sort of me putting a psychological spin in mm -hmm. a 21st century mindset, but still using those composers and still sort of just commenting on the story because I think, like, you know, we, as sa I say in my program notes to the album that you know, if we feel so strongly in love and we lose that love, mm. we can't, even though we think we might have the power to change it and to go to hell and get her back or whatever we think we can do, an ending is an ending and it's up to us to sort of reconcile with that. And so that's what the third part is about. So 
from something that was a completely original idea and sort of uh, risky to put on a recording and to find a collaborator to want to do it with you to getting nominated for a Grammy for it <laughs> yeah, and then winning. Crazy. Could you tell us about that arc? Well, I mean, I think I, you know, now it's a year later and I think I'm still really shocked about it all. I think uh, I, you know, I had an entrepreneurial idea. I was going mm -hmm. on tour with the orchestra as Orfeo mm -hmm. and I thought this would be a good chance for me to release my album. Mm -hmm. um, so I pitched it to Apollo's Fire and they said, that's a great idea. You just have to raise X amount of dollars for it. And it ended up being about five, six of the cost. Um, five sixths of the okay. cost of okay. the total very cost. round number. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, I've had to sort of think about these things a lot when yeah. I talk about them. But uh, uh, and um, uh, yeah, and then we got it together. We did a couple performances. We did the recording, and we got it together for the tour. And I ended up, we ended up selling a lot of CDs on the tour, mm -hmm. and. It's on a great label that has a terrific marketing. AV, yeah. Yeah, AV. And yeah. They, they ended up getting us some really good reviews. I mean, they didn't, you know, they, yes. they ended up getting a bunch of... I think of, you uh, probably helped with yeah. some of the positive yeah. reviews, I hope. No, but <laughs> I would hope so, yeah. yes. But, you know, they, they, I think that they got the They used the best plastic exposure. for the outside of the jewel <laughs> case. They got <laughs> the album some, some of the exposure that I think yeah. I definitely wouldn't have been able to have mm -hmm. on my own. And... Um, well, you're getting the upper box score bump yes, right exactly. now. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Thank you guys so much. Um, but uh, yeah, and and we got some terrific reviews, mm -hmm. and I think it just kind of you peaked at the right moment. I yeah. think so, yeah. and I think like you know, luck is a part of it, but I think also, I, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think like I was pretty like dead set on on maintaining a certain amount of integrity in the project, and. Mm. And I think, as you said, you can hear me in it. And I think that that might have spoken to people as they listened to it and as they then were presented with it as something to vote for. Yeah, well, like tell us about the... Uh, wild that is. Uh, about the day and is. what you wore, because that's, that's the... That's what everyone's story. wondering. Yes, about. Like, what? Who were you wearing? Who are you this art business. <laughs> 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 exactly. Uh, sad. Um, <laughs> so I, like, you know, it, for me, it felt like a once in a lifetime thing. And I, it was amazing that I was even going to go. Mm -hmm. And I decided, like, I wasn't going to win. So why not just show up and finish the story? And mm -hmm. so I had uh, Miriam Bari, who is, the show. who's based here yeah. in Chicago, uh, design a sort of black tie appropriate outfit that jacket that would um sort of reference uh 17th century italy mm -hmm. and um she designed this beautiful jacket and it was made here in chicago i had no idea she made men's clothes um yeah, yeah. i mean well that was basically a dress but <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, it was beautiful and yeah. really the point was to just like have have like finish up you know and yeah. tell the story completely and say you know, wear something that was referential to the album. And, you know, if somebody wanted to ask me what I was wearing, I would be able to talk about my album and yeah. not just like the clothes. Right. And, um, that's called synergy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and what was so cool for her is that, you know, I made like Vogue.com's like recap of like red carpet outfits and Amazing. stuff. Amazing. I mean, it was like super cool. Yeah. And like, I really felt like, 
I was just there for like an amazing party. So like <laughs> winning was was just. Did you write a speech? I did not write a speech. Okay. I blubbered, <laughs> blubbered on, and I I did manage to thank everybody. I think I was supposed to thank, and um, and I think I jumped up and down, and it was a really good button for them yeah. to play out the music because okay. I think I did ramble on for a very long time. So. <laughs> so you're in Chicago right now, getting ready to put together a concert with uh, the former cellist from Eighth Blackbird and. Uh, pianist Yasuko Oro, who is uh, at Northwestern University. Yes. And I believe there's also a violinist in your program. Yes, and a French horn player. Yes. So it's part of a, a series called Chamber Music at Bethany, and that's coming up at the end of the month. Uh, and you also have a Schubert recording uh, coming up, too. Yes. There's so much. Can there's you, like, so much. Can you give us two elevator speeches so we can wrap this okay, up? Okay, <laughs> so super, super quick. Uh, I'm doing a program, uh, Chamber Music at Bethany, uh, on the 26th Yes, we'll of link January. to it in there. Yeah, don't worry about the details. Um, so. And it is going to be, a, it's sort of based on the Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it uh, Some of the centerpieces are going to be Canticle 1, Canticle 3 I of love Britain, Canticle 1 so much. Um, oh and a piece by Caccini called Chia Costei and some Monteverdi from the Song of Songs. All these Song of Songs things. Nice. And it's going to be a beautiful program, I think. I thought you were Muslim. I am not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. Just the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Ab Abrahamic religions? Yeah. <laughs> They're all the same, aren't they? That's <laughs> oh my they gosh, Kareem. Oh, wait, wait, and oh, then the Schubert CD. Oh, thing. my Schubert CD. It is called Where Only Stars Can Hear Us. And mm. it is an offering uh, to people in darkness uh, mm. to find a way out and to uh, let them know that they're not alone. Oh, wow, that was a, a different pitch than expected. The, there's a tagline on the back of it that says, Sometimes all we need is a reminder that we're not alone. And who's the pianist mm. for that? Uh, and it's with a forte piano, an original 1830 Joseph Simone uh. forte piano, uh, nice. six and a half octave Viennese. Yi Heng Yang is one of the m most amazing historical keyboardists in this country, if not in the world. And she is a poet to her core, and she gets nice. it all. And, and that's she was amazing to work with. Avi. And that is going to be my sophomore project on Avi, yeah. Nice. And it's coming <laughs> out in March. I, uh, man, uh, we could spend like three hours with you, but do you have, do you have <laughs> a little bit more time to hang out with us? Sure, yeah, I would, okay, okay, I would love great, to. Okay, okay, great, fantastic. Hey, Oliver, let's let's wrap this one up with a, with a clip. With Dolcissimo Sospiro, this is the Caccini piece I was talking about. Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. It's our Labor Day weekend special. Summer's not over until we say it's over. Back in August of 2019, this is when we were still live on WNUR, and more on that at the end of this podcast, 
We did a three-hour season finale, the final hour of which was a TKO segment between Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings facing off in a brutal match over a very famous mad scene. Conductor Anthony Bereze was the judge on that, as well as Weston Williams being in the ring as well. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. TKO on the OBS. That's right, that's what you're listening to, Opera Box Score. It's America's talk radio show about opera, period. George Cedarquist hanging out with you for the three-hour season finale tonight, along with Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and our guest co-host, Anthony Bereze. Tobias Wright has left the building, I guess, is <laughs> best time. Everybody but Toby. Fault. Yeah. <laughs> you scared him off, Ooh. Matt. He, he just probably went home to cry, just uh, hugging himself in the corner. this. <laughs> As so he drifts off to sleep. We, we have just enough time, and we're actually, I'm very glad that Anthony Barese, who I consider to be one of the bel canto specialists uh, in our midst, uh, to help us adjudicate uh, a TKO. We haven't had one we of these. We haven't done one of these in a it's while. It's been a while, yeah. yeah. And since we talked about Mad Scene, I thought, why not make the Lucia Mad Scene, the most famous Mad Scene of them all, uh, so famous that it made it into a different galaxy in the sixth element. Or the fifth fifth element. Th- yeah. <laughs> the sixth element. <laughs> they have found another one. <laughs> Directed by Oscar Camacho, the sixth <laughs> element. So what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to have two singers go toe-to-toe in the mad scene. And we're going to have um, George be the judge who grades on uh, drama. Uh, on 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 theatricality. Because I can just hear it in the voice. <laughs> yes, you can. We're gonna have uh, you can hear like the echoes of the production design. He doesn't <laughs> the transitions. We're, we're gonna have <laughs> we're gonna have Maestro Bereze, uh comment and judge on uh, Italian diction, and um, I'll be judging whether or not there's a glass harmonica and vo- <laughs> and <laughs> and vocal technique. And Weston, uh, who is our sort of X Factor guy, will be judging. the wild card. Exactly, you're going <laughs> to talk about the wild card elements, the X Factor elements. So I'm going to set the stage here. Um, we're going to do this in five rounds. Uh, so you'll hear two clips in each round, and we'll begin with the accompagnato, uh, il dolce suono. And like many recitativos, accompagnatos, uh, it's is setting the stage for what's happening. You know, it's descriptive. Uh, it uh, is the best opportunity for the singer to act because you have a lot of text and you have a lot of exp- you have lots of explaining to do. <laughs> uh, so this is a great place to listen for acting and text painting. Uh, Oliver, you told the people what the show is, right? Uh, Lucia de Lamamore. Yes. So we're going to begin with my clip. Here's my, my unnamed singer. Oh, my God. 
So before Matt sets up his clip and while you guys are tabulating your scores, I just want to say that the audible breath is not bel canto, but I do think that in the recitativo acompañado, especially one in a mad scene, audible breath is a choice, uh, a, you know, a text painting choice. And it's actually, you know, it can be harmful to the voice. Um, it can cause your, you know, your larynx to be high or your throat to be certainly closed if you're making the, the breath so loud, which doesn't always allow for beauty of tone. Uh, but it's a choice and it's risky. And I really appreciated that. Matt, you're next. Yeah, I picked. The, I'll say this is the only round where we're not comparing apples and apples because I picked a, a section that overlaps with uh, the that portion of the recitativo acompañado that Oliver did, but uh, it starts in the middle and then goes a little bit farther because I like what my singer does in the following section. <laughs> So a lot of really expressive use of portamento there. What really made me sit up in my seat the first time I was listening to this is to the way she spits out the word felice right at the end yeah. of that on Campagnato. It was pretty shocking. Yeah, and even the way she says Edgardo, it's like she's really like screaming, you know, yeah. as much as you can scream and sing at the same time, you know. It was really declamatory, so... Anyway, I'm not trying to back up yeah. your singer, but I was really excited to hear that. That's so. just Oscar sabotaging uh, <laughs> yeah. Oliver's pick.
<laughs> so um, you guys can make a comment now. We can go to the next round if you have anything. I, I, to I, I, it's weird because I, I think I think Oliver, your your singer was handicapped by the mic placement mm-hmm. for the singer, and it was very stage heavy. And I could hear her walking around and breathing. And somebody was yeah. coughing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> and the and the sec- and but but I liked her voice so much. It was so beautiful. But the second one, I could just take dictation. Like her her. Her her pronunciation of every word was crystal clear. Yep. Um, yeah, it always comes down to diction for me as well. So I would definitely <laughs> give it to the second. But yeah, for for diction, I'd have to give it to the second one. But for just pure beauty of, of voice, I would I would definitely go with the first one. And the fact that I don't speak Italian probably means that it's going to go to the first one for me. Hmm. So the, the second round, <laughs> wild card baby. Um. So the mad scene is essentially a, a extended aria cantilena cabaletta uh, form. Um, it really is a double aria form, but uh, we'll just call it that just for the sake of making this easy. So the round two is going to be uh, the aria or the uh, cantabile section of the mad scene. And um, I will say that b- bel canto in many ways is a lot like opera seria or you know Baroque opera in that you get to the aria moment and there isn't a lot of uh, variety of idea. Mm-hmm. Once once you get to the aria, it's basically one idea and you have to just give it your best shot. Like how can you live in this one affect, in this one emotion? And the emotion in this case is one of happiness, of joy, of ecstasy. It's a ceremony, it's a wedding. She thinks she's getting married and she's just happy. And what does happiness sound like in bel canto? We'll, we'll start with uh, my clip. Before we hear Matt's clip, I just wanted to say that the stipulation for our uh, singer matchup was that we could not choose Maria Callas, because that would be too easy to win. <laughs> and we also could not choose Lizette Oropresa, because she does seem to be the Lucia of the moment. So those two singers are ro- ruled out. Uh, and that's all I have to say about that. So, Matt? That's very true. I think we should just go right in. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
so we'll take your comments quickly, but we do have to move this along. I'll just say that it may be the conductor's fault, but I feel <laughs> like the second clip, Matt's clip, uh, that we there wasn't enough space, there wasn't enough time to really feel <laughs> that there was you know control of the music. I, I see. I'm going to jump in and 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 disagree with you there because I felt the first one was too indulgent. I felt like the first one I was I was super conscious of the fact that there was a conductor because there was so much rubato and they were doing so many things that would have been impossible without a conductor. Mm -hmm. mm. And I always try and listen to this music with the thought that, you know, there was no conductor at the premiere of Lucia. Like uh, none of this music had a conductor in the sense that we know it. And the second one somehow kept it, you know, she, she kept it moving. And but I, I could hear her smiling when she said, Ministro, like the way she said ministro, I could hear her that she was spite. Again, it's just a, just from a purely diction standpoint, the second woman is just is blasting the first one out of the water. But I also think the first one is handicapped by the the microphones, and I, I just I just dis disagree with with Oliver because I don't like I don't like the excessive rubato in this kind of music. I like it a little bit more straightforward from an orchestral standpoint, and then I want the singer to be more free. But I th I think that this is really. Uh, Donna, uh, Lucia de Lammermoor, I feel like, is the exception for me. It's a mad scene. It should feel off-kilter. Yeah, but I, I, I partially, part of the reason I chose my singer is because I liked the less is more on the first verse of this. And now we're going to go hear the second verse, which is a little bit more elevated, a little bit more gone, a little bit more off in the clouds, and you'll hear uh, how the singers bring that to And, life. George, you can play both clips simultaneously. Or, I mean, <laughs> without... <laughs> 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 that might make it a little bit difficult for us. But, Oliver, we're going to start with your choice. Okay.
for the sake of time, we are just going to do a quick intermission and then go on to, to round four without commentary here. Uh, the next round is going to be the cadenza section, the flute cadenza, which almost certainly was not written by Donizetti, but has been traditional <laughs> since the uh, since the late 1800s. And what what's interesting about a cadenza is that it is, in it, in essence, pure vocalism, but also how much can you keep the character and the drama alive while you're doing that? Oliver's Corner going first.
Matt, before we let uh, our jury uh, deliberate, do you have any final comments about either your or my, my selection? My final pitch for my singer is that she uh, doesn't go over the top. She definitely keeps it human. She plays the positive as much as she can. Mm. Uh, and she is not afraid to let a little bit of that humanity show through e- by introducing kind of the... Uh, a, a little bit of extra oomph into uh, onsets and offsets, which maybe not be bel canto, but is pretty exciting. I'll say that your singer uh, has very good taste, but I do think is limited uh, vocally compared to my singer. I think that my singer has so much technique to give and could really do anything. That's true with... for almost every singer compared to <laughs> yours. <laughs> could do almost anything with her with her voice. And when we learn who this singer is, you'll know that this singer actually sang this role for 40 years. I assume this was not her 40th year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So we'll start with you, Tony. I, I'm just going to, you know, it's, I liked different things about different people. You know, like the first one, I, I, I loved her technique and I loved the, the, the quality of her voice. I did not like the sort of overindulgent, like histrionic um, kind of approach to it. And, and I think, again, that a lot of that has to do with my concept of bel canto and how, I want it to sound like it. It, you, it could happen without. I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be reminded of the fact that that a conductor is part of it. I don't want to hear the hand of the conductor in it. Um, and so for that reason, it, that and the language just make the second one. The second, one, like you said, it, it was so tasteful. And I think that our idea of a mad scene is very different than what it would have been like back then. I mean, you know, I, I think. Mm. I, I think. Modern ideas of madness, especially in movies, and, and the, the kind of over over the topness of it, really informs uh, our idea of what madness is in a way that I think would not have back then. So I think for for sheer, what I believe is true bel canto singing and interpretation, uh, I'm going to have to go with the second singer. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going towards a unanimous decision here. I think for me, just having that super clear diction and that drive of everything's just a little bit quicker tempo than singer one. I'm voting for singer two. Uh, you say unanimous. It's not going to be unanimous. Oh. Uh, first of all, let me say, no glass Split harmonica decision. in either of those, so <laughs> both are garbage. That, uh, that's, bringing that glass harmonica back has really only has only been done after both of these performances. Yeah, very tragic. Oh, God. That's the one thing I want out of, out of Lucia. But, uh, but you know, I, I think that... Uh, disclaimer. I am not the biggest fan of Lucia de Lammermoor. I've never been a big high bel canto. I don't think you needed guy. to make that disclaimer. I know yeah, I, it's a very dangerous <laughs> thing to say next to Anthony, uh, but uh, I, I do. When I when I see the mad scene, the mad scene for me is the highlight of the piece. I want those uh, film, just you know, uh, I want to see blood splatter. I want to hear you blood splatter. I want story. to hear. <laughs> I want to hear. I want to hear melodrama. I want to hear. Uh, really weird stops and starts in the music. I want to hear uh, that. Uh, one of the great things I loved about uh, Singer Number One, particularly, uh, was the way um, the way she uh, really worked with the space she was singing in, particularly in the cadenza. The way she hit those certain notes really worked in that space in a way I don't think. Well, she sang some of them off the breath. I mean, she sang some of them straight tones. So I would like, say right. Singer 1 had the better cadenza for sure. So it does go to Singer 2, two votes versus Weston's so one vote. The big reveal. reveal the the big are. reveal in the last minutes of the show. And by the way, the, the uh, podcast listeners, 
Uh, round five is all about stamina. So you're going to hear <laughs> the second verse of Spargi da Morpianto, uh, which is, can you fast forward four minutes into the mad scene and still have beautiful tone and still sing an E-flat? And those of you listening to the podcast get to enjoy that. But uh, my singer was none other than the recently retired Edita Gubarova. Oh, uh, yes. That was from 1978. That was her debut wow. Wow. of Lucia at the uh, Wiener... That was her debut that was of it. Lucia? Yeah. She'd been singing Where? for yeah. like At the Wiener Staatsoper in, uh, with Giuseppe Patane. And mine was uh, Anna Moffo from a televised performance on, a, on the Italian national station, RAI. So for those people who used to listen to Opera Now podcast, you know that Anna Muff was one of my favorite singers of all time. So it's very hard for me to listen to her <laughs> with a critical <laughs> ear, but I finally did it. <laughs> finally, after all these years, you got me to do it. So. Thanks to Oliver and Matt Good for getting that yeah. TKO together. Time to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. It is definitely strange to be passing the baton from myself to my self great segments there from the obs archives i'm excited to say that we have high hopes that we're going to be back live on wnur 89.3 fm and hd1 beginning monday september 14 we're trying to work out the details right now you'll still get your podcast version of our show on tuesdays but if you can Tune in live Monday nights, 9 p.m. Central Time. You can also stream the live show, wnur.org slash pop-up. And it's going to be a great show next week. David and Francisco Salazar from Opera Wire, the go-to website of Opera News, the Associated Press of Opera News, are going to be on the show. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho for our whole team. Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera even if, yes, summer maybe is finally over. Next week, Monday, September 14, 9 p.m. Central, hoping to be live on the show with the podcast version coming out Tuesday. More opera headlines, more hot takes, and more live. Join us. <laughs>